everyone. I'm delighted to introduce my first international guest on this episode. Based in France, trauma recovery therapist Helen Ferguson learned to change the narrative around the trauma she experienced. For over 20 years, she has been helping high-achieving women to shed their shame, allowing them to move forward towards self-compassion. Will you please share your background for the work you did at NHS, evolving into the work you're currently doing? The NHS in the UK is the National Health Service. I originally qualified as a psychiatric nurse and um, went straight into working with children and young people in the NHS. So children and young people with mental health problems who'd been traumatised and abused. So I worked there for quite some time, initially only working with children, but then also found myself working with foster carers, supervising social workers, adoptive parents and parents of those children, also helping them with their own abuse and trauma that was impacting on their ability to look after those children. So I helped them then respond to the emotional needs of those children. So through that process of working in the National Health Service in the NHS, I also then trained in all sorts of different therapeutic modalities. I specialised obviously in trauma, attachment therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, dyadic developmental psychotherapy, solution-focused therapy and family therapy. So I have a plethora of skills that went through that period of time of working. So I trained and skilled myself up in those. I then left the NHS about now 12 years ago because after having done a managerial role at the same time as my therapeutic role, I actually found myself burnt out. And so I made the decision to leave to really reevaluate what I wanted to do and how I wanted to use my skills. And that's how I've designed and developed my working program with uh, high achieving women to help them emotionally recover from trauma through self-compassion and achieving self-acceptance and standing confidently in their self-belief and self-worth. It's been a kind of journey from infancy to adulthood into specifically women. It's been a tough journey, I'm not going to lie, but it's been an amazing journey to what I do now. What is trauma and also what is your philosophy for helping people heal from it? Trauma is an emotional response to an event, a life challenge, if you will, to an experience that has caused this emotional response and physiological response and psychological response. I want to say holistic response to this event, which affects an individual. It affects their ability to be themselves, be who they are. It brings about shame. It brings about mental health problems in terms of depression, anxiety, panic. And so my philosophy of working with trauma and with the trauma response is to shed the shame of trauma and the statements around, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I deserved it the narrative that goes around with that trauma response to embracing self-compassion and responding to yourself with a compassionate stance that allows you to self-soothe. It allows you then to, through that self-soothing, to respond to your emotional needs and your psychological needs, to understand the emotions that you've been experiencing are not bad. They are normal responses to a, a traumatic event, to a challenging life experience. So too often we hear there's good and bad emotions. My philosophy is there is no good or bad emotions. There are emotions. And we have to, we have to understand them to be able to help ourselves, to be able to move forward. We have to accept the emotions that we have for what they are and 
to understand what we need because they're signposting you to something and they're signposting you to a need. So my philosophy around trauma is to understand what that need is and respond to it and to have the skill to be given, provided the guidance around the skill to be able to respond to those needs for yourself. Because not having that need met is what's causing the emotion. The emotional pain and the psychological pain is that the need isn't being met, that we can't quite understand what it is, that we're frightened of the emotion because it's a quote-unquote bad emotion or it's a scary emotion or it's one that is all-encompassing and it's overwhelming. But what we're able to do is if we come from a stance of compassion, a non-judgmental compassion, then we identify what the emotion is. We then track it Let's use it as as a kind of compass, as a guide, as a map to what you need. And then with the women I'm working with, we understand what the need is and then we understand how they can respond to that need. Because any kind of therapy, including trauma therapy, is an empowering process. It's not one that should have people feeling stuck, that should have people feeling reliant. It should be an empowering process of emotional agility and being able to respond, to accept the emotion that you're experiencing, to understand it for what it is, to understand what other underlying emotions there may be, and then to identify what it's signposting you so that you can seek to respond to that emotion as you need to. Much of your work and life mission to help people stems from personal trauma. Can you give us context for the trauma you experienced and what point in your life that happened? I was in three psychologically and emotionally abusive relationships. The final one of the layer, if you like, was on the periphery of physical as well. There was physical aspects involved. And that was from the age of 16 until I was 21, 22. Despite those experiences or in spite of I still managed to go through university and to achieve to achieve what I needed to, and wanted to achieve in university. I'm not entirely sure where the resilience came from, but it was there. But in those experiences, I also worked alongside a fantastic nurse because during university I was working nights and weekends, you know, you got to earn some extra money somewhere. And she sat with my pain. She didn't question me. She didn't judge me. She didn't ask me about it. She wasn't overly intrusive. She was curious, but she was compassionate. And I remember thinking in that compassionate process from her, I remember saying to myself, that's how I want to be. That's what I want to give to people. And I knew that that's who I was, but it was just hidden underneath these layers of the story that wasn't my story. I'm not owning the story of the abusers, but it was hidden. My voice was quiet. I suppose people looking on would consider me quiet. They would consider me moody. They would consider me unhelpful or unhappy sometimes because I never shared with family or I I shared with one friend, but I never shared with family and friends exactly what was going on. I remember in that moment with this nurse, Frankie, she was incredible. She gave me the compassion that I needed to understand the compassion that I needed to give myself. And that led to the absolute decision when I completed my university to burn the bridge of abuse. I was no longer going to be defined by these three relationships, um, what their story was. I had always known I was a helper. I'd always known that I was heart-centered. I always knew that I was destined to do that kind of thing. But I never knew what it would look like because I didn't actually know what I looked like. 
So, mm-hmm. and I mean that in a spiritual sense as well. It was going through that process and then starting my therapeutic work, starting my work with children and young people, and then with adults that just kind of really clearly defined for me how I needed to use the professional gifts that I have. I consider them gifts, coupled with the gift of experience of having come through a traumatic few years with an immense amount of resilience and finding a compassionate person that just sat with my pain and helped me see me and helped me find my voice. That's my mission and passion, really. You were talking about how therapy can empower people to move forward. Mm. Would you say that was your experience? I've never had therapy. (laughs) I'm just (laughs) going to say that. (laughs) I guess I'm fortunate that I've never had therapy. But what that was, was a therapeutic process with Frankie, whether it was intended to be that or not. She was just an incredible incredible woman that saw a young woman with low self-esteem, lack of self-worth, lack of confidence, that done a lot of self-sabotage on myself, really done a good job of the self-criticism, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And she just kind of sat with that and she didn't judge. She just gave herself into that space. And that is a therapeutic process in itself. So the heart of your work is exploring beyond behaviors to discover and understand the motivations behind those behaviors. Why is this important? Because behavior in terms of trauma and trauma response is often embedded in shame. And I want the women that I work with to not be stuck in that cycle. Those self-critical thoughts, those self-sabotaging behaviors those behaviours in which we and they can hinder themselves in moving forward are not who they are. They're a product of something else. And so my ethos is around shifting away from the behavioural and helping women to be able to understand that their past doesn't define who they are, the old story doesn't define who they are, and the behaviours have been their coping mechanism and they've been a survival technique, but they, they don't need to do that. There are self-compassionate ways in which women can self-soothe, they can look after themselves, they can stand confidently in their self-belief, they can stand confidently in their business and in their professional life, in their entrepreneurial life, and that the behaviours don't need to stay as a part of that pattern. You were talking about signs earlier. Would you say that some of these behaviours are signs for a call for help? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they often are. They're often a signal. If I'd have known what I do now, observed my younger self, I would have noticed, I I would be thinking to myself, gosh, there's a sign. There's a sign. This is not, this is not a girl that is happy. This is a girl that is struggling. And so it's about being able to be aware of those. And we're not all skilled in that. You know, I've spent years, I've been trained now, I've been doing this work now for 22 years. And so we're not all skilled in that. We might, the the layman observer, if you like, might see just anger, might see somebody who's angry. They might see somebody who is controlling, you know, for example, let's use food. When everything is outside of our control, food and what we put into ourselves is the biggest thing that we can control. So we often, it's often used to try and control the emotional pain and to try and control what's uncontrollable around them. So, you know, it's about needing to be aware of those things and not necessarily making a judgment 
a judgment about them that is, oh, they're, gosh, they're, I don't know, they're angry, they're just moody, they're just having a moment, oh, they're a teenager, they're mm-hmm, this, they're mm-hmm. that, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, when you think of all those statements that come through, that we have to become conscious observers of ourselves. But also if we are with somebody, if we are living with somebody, if we are in a relationship with somebody, we are the son, daughter, wife, husband, partner, and uncle, whatever. (laughs) If you can be aware that some of those behaviours are because somebody's in pain and show a compassionate response to that, that's hugely important in making change happen. When we see someone acting out, we're quick to judge, you know, with these labels you were just talking about. Mm. Those labels are judgments toward that person. Yes. When in reality, they may be trying to ask for help, but don't know how, especially children with these big emotions. They don't necessarily know how to ask for help or even process these emotions. No, because often they don't know what the name of the emotion is. And that's equally the same with adults. With the women that I work with and the children that I've worked with, you know, we don't often know the name of the emotion we're feeling. We often encompass it as a global thing like anger, or I'm sad, or I'm upset. But actually, if we look under the layers of that, there's so much more. I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed, I'm disgusted, I am frightened, I am fearful. But we often go for the first, the first thing. With adults as well, it's It is about also helping to name the emotion. Naming the emotion becomes part of controlling them. You gain some power over the emotion if you're able to start naming. And with children and young people, it's slightly different. You have to do a bit of exploration and curiosity in in naming them for them. Because I've worked with children that haven't known the difference between being hungry and being sad. There's just this feeling that they have, but they're not able to differentiate. So it is in across the age range, it is about helping to name the emotion. It's about noticing it, naming it, and then being able to respond to it. And with children, of course, you you help respond to it. But with adults, and certainly the women I work with, it's about naming, accepting, noticing, and renaming. Because often they'll name an emotion and we explore it with a huge amount of curiosity. And then it's like, oh, well, I realise it wasn't that, actually. I'm feeling this. And so it's a, it's a, it's an enlightening process. It's kind of like an expedition. You're going on (laughs) this expedition and you're unearthing different things. And in this case, it's emotions and what's causing the behaviors. Yes, because it's, you know, the, the behavior is often what people will notice first. Or they're like, you know, like you say, when people say about children or they're acting out with adolescents, oh, they're typical adolescents. With women, there can be so many labels about behavior. Gosh, there's a huge amount. And so, you know, it is about helping to, through an expedition, through curiosity and exploration. Well, the behaviors are just a kind of symptom, if you like. They're a way of manifesting those emotions, a way of trying to control them, a way of trying to cope with them. But when they become overwhelming, they spill out. And that spills out into different kinds of behavior. But people are often labeled with the behavior rather than there being a compassionate, empathic understanding of what might be behind the behavior. Yeah. And in that case, that you can actually help the person who's experiencing that. Yeah. Instead of putting labels on them, because that's what adds to the shame. 
Labels are shaming. One of the first things that I do with women is we start stripping the labels back. And that includes the labels of, you know, and, and we don't get rid of the, you know, all of the labels because, but it also includes the labels of that we give ourselves. Well, I'm, I'm a professional. I'm a mum. I'm a wife. They are proper labels and they're useful labels. But take all of those, put them aside for a minute. And I ask a woman who she actually is. And it's incredibly powerful, that process of just stripping the layers back. Who are you? Describe yourself to me. And don't describe, I'm an artist or I'm a therapist. I'm a, I don't know, JCB driver, you know, all of those things. But strip all those typical labels back that we have. And I ask women who they actually are and who they want to be. So I elevate them to see who they want to be. I think there are so many other labels that we, as women, we carry from the very fact that they're women and we, you know, we perhaps need to behave in a certain way. We need to respond to people in a certain way that showing emotion means that we're menopausal or we're erratic or we're this or we're that, you know, there's kind of, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, the amount of times you, you kind of hear, oh gosh, well, she must be menopausal. It's those kind of things that we also need to stop because they're stigmatizing and they're shaming. And actually what we need to do is to stand compassionately and with empathy and understand what's happening for someone and be there, be the Frankie. That's what I decided to be. I decided to be the Frankie that sat with people's pain and sat with them to understand who they are. I'm not interested in their labels. I'm interested in who they are. I'm interested in the labels and how they want to be within those labels of mum, of entrepreneur, of businesswoman, of friend, of lover, of partner, of wife. But I'm not interested in them holding on to the other labels that serve them no purpose. I love that question so much. It's so powerful because normally when you're asked that question, or at least initially, before all of the curiosity, we tend to name the labels that have been given to us by other people or society's expectations of us. And when you take all of that away, who is the core of that person? So it's a difficult question, but I think it's a powerful one. It is a very powerful one. And, you know, I have to pitch it very carefully with women, depending on where they are in their journey with me, because there are some women that start working with me that can't even look at me. So I'm not going to ask them to do that when they can't even look at me. Right. That's when I know that, well, I need to sit with their pain. I need to give them the time that they need. And I just gently say, I'm still here. They can be crying and not looking at me. And that's all right but they're still there mm-hmm. and and I'm still there. And so I wouldn't go in with that question then. But there are other women that start working with me that are not necessarily in that place, but they're in a place of being able to say who they want to be, what they're looking for, what their hopes are in working with me. And then I'm able to say, okay, well, we need to look at you now. And then I get the, well, well I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm this and I'm that. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> it's not as easy as that. (laughs) (laughs) But I can totally see that happening because you're naming obvious answers. Those are good. Those are not bad answers, but they're the obvious ones. There's deeper curiosity and excavation that needs to happen to bring out who that person really is. And the other labels that are usually hanging around are the ones that have been given to them. The ones that are part of the narrative of the trauma, of the abuse, of the childhood trauma, those kind of things. And remembering that trauma isn't isn't only those things, rather. There are several different types of trauma. 
And so they come with a narrative. Gosh, I've had, had so many about being a, a bad daughter. You know, I mustn't have been good enough. I gave all the love to my partner and I must have deserved what he gave me or she gave me because abuse happens in same-sex relationships as well. But also trauma is equally divorce and separation. You know, the response to that life event mm-hmm. is also traumatic. So there's so many there's so many labels that come from the narrative. And what I help women do is change the narrative. We don't live in the past. One of the things that I'm always asked, <laughs> and it's a fear, it's a fear that anybody that starts to or is thinking of working with me has, is that I'm going to take them to the place that caused them pain. And I say to them, no, I need to know what it was because I'm skilled enough to know what the effect on you would be. Not the detail, you know, not the, not the personal detail, but I'm skilled enough to know how that will have affected you. And that's what we work with. I don't need to take them right back. I don't need to regress and all of those kind of things. We don't need to go back to the point of pain. I just need to understand what the story was. And then in understanding what the story was and understanding what the new story needs to be, that's what we work on. We work on the here and now and we move forward for the future. You mentioned the concept of shifting the shame. Mm -hmm. What does the process to overcome this shift look like when working with a client? It's an interesting process (laughs) because it's one that is a surprise for them. The shift from shame, the antidote to shame is self-compassion. And self-compassion often has its own label of being self-indulgent, lazy, I don't have time for it, it's going to be intrusive on my life, I'm too busy, I've got the children, I've got work, I've got this, I've got that. But the antidote to shame is self-compassion because when we come to ourselves from a place of non-judgment, from a place of acceptance of who we are, then shame has no place to be able to sit. When you're vulnerable, when you are judging yourself, when you are criticizing yourself, shame gets into the cracks and makes itself comfortable. It makes its bed and it lays there. (laughs) So the, the process of working with me is an interesting one because the foundation of my work, the foundational element of my work is self-compassion. So it's a self-compassion focused therapy. But layered onto that is emotional agility. So understanding the feeling, understanding the emotion, understanding what it's signposting you to, acknowledging that, being able to work with those emotions. It's also inner child healing. After the women have reached a point of being able to acknowledge and visualize their inner child, I do visualization work. We're able to introduce the inner child into the therapeutic process and have a conversation with her. It's really interesting the conversations that the women have with their inner child. And, you know, I do incorporate some solution focused and some cognitive behavioral therapy on the basis that some of the work needs to be around the cognitive distortion because the self-criticism is also cognitive distortion. It's about all the statements. This is why it's complex. The foundation is self-compassion. So we do a whole a whole process of self-compassion, of understanding the inner critic, responding to the inner critic, responding how you would do as though you were talking to yourself as, as someone you love and care about. I incorporate mindfulness into that and self-kindness, but mindfulness in terms of bringing a real sense of presence to yourself and how and your being. And so we do that through breathing because one of the things that is 
hugely, hugely powerful, but is the, the one thing that we take advantage of is our breathing. We don't notice it, but when you connect with it, you're connecting with yourself and you're activating the self-soothe system, which then tells the threat system that it doesn't have to be on this high alert, this trauma high alert all the time. And so, you know, we then move on to some pleasure task focusing, really in the moment of things that you enjoy connecting with yourself in those moments. And then coupled with the emotional agility, coupled with inner child healing, coupled with really understanding people's values and how you want to live by, because they're the handrails to your boundaries. So then what we create is this really self-compassionate values-based living, which also has this layer of accepting your emotions and being able to respond to them with a complete mindset transformation around the self-sabotage, self-critical thinking and the cognitive distortion. So it's a huge process, Mm -hmm. but it it is amazing to see the transformations. When someone is in a place of vulnerability, full of shame and maybe also guilt, Mm. what are some activities they can do to move themselves toward that space of self-compassion? One of the main things that I would say to begin with is notice the voice. Notice the voice that's telling you that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy, that you don't deserve to be happy. Recognize that that voice isn't yours. That voice isn't owned by you. That voice is the story. That voice is the person that's treated you badly. That voice is the bad experience, the traumatic experience. That voice isn't yours. Once you're able to start noticing that and saying to yourself, that's not a tone of voice that I would use. That's not my actual voice. It may be in my head, it may sound like me, but actually the words aren't mine. The words come from someone else because you weren't, you didn't come out of the womb not good enough. Mm-hmm. You didn't then play with your toys on the carpet with your friends or your sister or your brother and suddenly stop thinking, I can't continue with this because I'm a bad person, you know? So the first thing that I ask my clients to do, and we go through a whole exploration of this, is understand that the voice isn't yours. It's coming from somewhere else. It belongs to something and someone else. And then ask yourself, how would you speak to somebody who was saying those things to themselves? What's your response to that person? And then turn that response inward to yourself. That's amazing. You mentioned that voice in your head. You know, we all do. We have, we are our own worst critics. And so we always have that voice in the head. And it sounds like we're saying that to ourselves, but that's not the truth. That's somebody else's narrative. It's not the truth. That's somebody else's narrative and that's somebody else's truth, but it's a lie about you. When I do the process with women and they stop and I ask them to think about whose voice it is. Because it, like I said, it could have been, you know, it could have been a father or a mother. It could have been a bully at school. It could have been a a teacher that was really horrid to you. It could have been an abusive partner. You know, one of the things that stuck with me for years was I remember being told that I would never amount to anything. And I believed it for a long time. And I believed it until I was able to say to myself, that's not my voice. Those aren't the words that I would use to myself, and it's not my voice. I don't own it. It's not my story. 
And it's super powerful to know that we can change that narrative from what we perceive as truth, but really is a lie that has been told to us. And we've just believed it. Mm -hmm. The women that come to me, they've believed it for such a long time. It's become a blueprint. And I say, no, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to rip up that blueprint. We're going to create a new blueprint and we're going to have an amazing and emotional scaffolding and compassionate scaffolding that's around you that stops that from continuing. Wow. I love that so much. So therapists and counselors who are doing similar work that you are may experience compassion fatigue. What is the meaning of this phrase? Well, compassion fatigue is, I mean, not just therapists actually and people doing the work that I do, but anyone can experience compassion fatigue. And I mean that in the sense that if you are someone who is looking after or you are a partner of or you are alongside someone who has experienced trauma and you're looking after them or you're trying to help them, but you're you're becoming overwhelmed yourself, you can experience compassion fatigue, which means that you are unable to give that compassion that you want to give because you feel overwhelmed yourself. So, for example, I've worked with foster carers that have experienced compassion fatigue because they are living with traumatised and abused children who are throwing everything at these foster carers, throwing their love back in their face, throwing their care back in their face. That's what it feels like to the foster carers. They're not. They just don't know how to accept it. It's not something they're used to, so they don't know how to accept it. So they throw it back because it's too it's too painful to hold. We don't know what it is, you know. So have it back, have it back. No, don't give it to me. Yeah. So you know, foster carers can then experience compassion fatigue because they're getting this relentless rejection when we're working with people. So me, you know, working with women who have been who are traumatized, who are in emotional overwhelm, who have a trauma response to challenging life experiences. I could go into compassion fatigue if I didn't recognize that what I needed to do was look after myself. So I need to provide myself with compassion in order to bring compassion to the therapeutic process and respond to the emotional needs of the women that I work with. Even families where there is somebody that has had a traumatic event, so even car accident and it's a family member, and they're all living in close proximity, there's a secondary trauma that happens, and that contributes to compassion fatigue. So it's being able to say to yourself, I am dealing with this. The only way that I can respond to the need that is around me right now is to provide myself with compassion. It's like when you're on an airplane, they always tell you, secure your own mask before assisting others. Absolutely. I know when my dad died, for example, my dad died last January. I had a wonderful relationship with my dad and I miss him. I miss him incredibly. But I knew that I couldn't give what I needed to give to my clients. I could have tried. I could have just plowed through and just said, yeah, okay, day after, yes, let's have all the therapeutic process and the therapy appointments. But I would have been not listening to myself. I would have been blocking compassion to myself. And so you have to be self-aware enough to know that you can't give without being compassionate to yourself, without acknowledging what you need. And so if you try, what happens is compassion fatigue, and then through compassion fatigue, you end up in emotional overwhelm. Which is not helping anyone. No. 
What are the signs that people can look for, people who are not as self-aware? What are the signs that they might be experiencing compassion fatigue? You will notice that you're not able to give. You're not able to respond. You may find yourself becoming frustrated with the other person. You may find yourself wanting to distance yourself from them, to isolate yourself. You will find that you are exhausted that sleep is something that is like grasping a cloud. Mm-hmm. You might you might struggle with sleep. You might find that your eating is affected. You are less perhaps healthy. You're reaching for an emotional comfort with food. But the typical, initial typical signs are that you are frustrated. You're not able to respond with warmth in the way that you were. You find yourself agitated by the other person. That's so informative. Thank you for sharing that. What is your favorite compliment you've ever received? Personally or professionally? Either or both. Professionally, I would say that the greatest compliment is that I was the epitome of compassion for clients who needed to receive that in order for them to be able to give it to themselves. My recent client said exactly that. She said, your compassion is unrelenting. And she said, you are the epitome of the compassion that I needed to experience in order to find it within myself. Wow. I suppose that is also personal as well, because I'm a compassionate person. I'm unrelenting in my compassion towards my friends and I will listen and I will probably sometimes I will I will take on too much. I suppose that's probably a little bit of a downside of it. But I'm personally, I also consider myself and been told that I'm incredibly empathic and compassionate, that I also have this very calm presence that puts people at ease and that it never feels like they're alone. Which is so important because a lot of times with the trauma that we've experienced, we might feel very isolated and we feel like we're the only one. Even if we consciously know we're not the only one going through it, if we don't see anyone else around us experiencing the same thing, it can feel very lonely. Oh, absolutely. Trauma is lonely. <laughs> trauma and trauma, trauma response is a, lonely, is a lonely experience. You know, I was talking to somebody this morning and we were having this conversation. I have a, a show on Facebook called Conversations with Compassion and, and we were talking in this conversation and she's been through a loss and she was talking to me about grief and how she should have got over it by now. And I said to her, I'm not entirely sure why you think you should, because loss is universal, but grief is personal. Mm. And it's the same with trauma. Trauma and trauma responses and challenging life experiences, they're universal. But grief, sorry, trauma response, the response to it for you is personal. Mm -hmm. And that's what needs to be listened to. Yeah, because also everybody experiences trauma differently and everybody processes trauma differently. Yeah. And that's why there's different, you know, there's all all different types of trauma therapy because people need to connect with the person and, and the therapy that is responsive for them. And so it's important that we don't isolate people into a trauma response, that they don't feel alone. Some of the statements that people hear is, oh, I know how you feel. Well, no, we don't <laughs> because we're not them. My trauma and my response to it and how I dealt with it was personal to me. And that's equally the same for every single woman that contacts me for help is it's personal to them. Yeah. And what I listen to is what that looks like and how we move forward. What is a compliment you can give yourself? 
oh gosh <laughs> oh wow I'm not really good at compliments to myself but we'll give it a go a compliment to myself is I would give myself two one that I have an incredible amount of resilience that I'm very very proud of despite and in spite of the experiences that I've had in life that I'm still able to give because it's so important that we don't stop giving even when life has dealt us with some terrible or tragic blows that we're still able to give and I'm and I a compliment I would give myself is that that despite everything I still give and I'm still smiling and I'm still compassionate and I still love and I'm happy and I want to share that (laughs) (laughs) well you're doing it I'm doing it And I'm going to give that compliment right back to you because you absolutely are resilient, compassionate, and I just appreciate this conversation so much. It's been a wonderful conversation, Estella. Thank you so much. And I love everything that you're doing. You know that. I've said that to you before. This podcast, the way that you're sharing this platform to help adults, to reach out, to find their voice, to be heard and to be listened to and and to know that they're not alone is amazing. What you're doing is an incredible thing. Oh, thank you so much. I just look back to when this idea first came to me last January. I was completely resistant to it. I was that person who had lost my voice because I was living based on people telling me who I needed to be, who I should be. And there were all these expectations and standards Mm -hmm. and I ended up losing my voice. So it's been a powerful thing to be able to find my voice again. I had all the excuses. I'm self-conscious of my talking voice. I don't like speaking into a microphone. That just seems weird to me. (laughs) You know, all the excuses I did. I was so resistant to it. But then the Mm -hmm. more I thought about it, I realized, no, this is actually a valuable platform because I've experienced a lot of different kinds of trauma throughout my life. And Mm -hmm. I just kind of owned that. I was like, you know what? Here I am thinking I was not enough. How am I going to lead other people? I didn't think that my trauma story was powerful enough. And then once I got past that, I was like, actually, I'm the perfect person to do this. Yes. yes. (laughs) Because I've had trauma. I've had to process my own trauma. I'm still doing it. Yeah. Point of this podcast is I wanted to make sure everybody knew that I'm still healing from it right alongside everybody who's listening. Because trauma recovery isn't about 100% healing. It's about being able to continue to heal and to be able to recognize triggers, for example, that may take us back and just being able to respond to that. So recovery isn't about 100% healing, but it is about being able to say, I'm, I'm still doing it. I'm still able to heal. I'm still here for myself. And when I do have my wobbles, that I'm able to stabilize myself again. No, and it really is because you don't reach a final destination of healing. You were mentioning the triggers. I've noticed that myself. You know, last year I went through a tornado and two floods. And so this year, when it's tornado season, that was a trigger for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was overnight. So I'm still working on, I never used to be scared of the dark. I never used to be terrified, but now Mm -hmm. I am and I've got PTSD. And so I have taken security Mm. measures, you know, I sleep with nightlights on in every room. Yeah. Just so that I can manage that and I'm still able to be functioning. Yes. You know, and I'm able to continue to move forward while I'm still trying to heal from this. Which is fantastic that you've been able to do that and continue to do that. And you know, it is a process. It's always a journey. It's not just a one and done. No, it is a continuing journey. 
That's why I always describe self-compassion as a continuous healing journey. You should never stop self-compassion. If people are interested in learning more about what you do, and if they could possibly work with you, where can they go to find you? If people want to follow me on Instagram or on Facebook, I'm on Instagram as Helen B. Ferguson. On Facebook, I'm Helen Ferguson Therapy. I have a free group for women called the Brave Women Collective, which is a fantastic free group where I provide prompts and some tips and advice, um, self-compassion, self-belief, self-acceptance. And if women are wanting to work with me, I have two one-to-one programs. One is a three-month transformation process, which is of the comprehensive process that I described earlier. I also have a foundational process. The first one is three months, but the foundational process is seven sessions, which is to bring the foundations of self-compassion into your life. And I do have a membership as well for women who are perhaps not ready for one-to-one. They're not able to commit to one-to-one at this time, but they still want to be able to work with me. And it's a group therapeutic program, weekly sessions and a monthly deep dive Q&A and training from me and guest trainings as well. And an incredible membership portal, uh, resource portal on my website. So there's a, there's a plethora of ways people can work with me. And that's also very important because healing is also not one size fits all. No. So some people prefer the one-on-one, yes. some people yes. thrive in the group yeah. sessions. It needs to be accessible as well. There needs to be not just a one-to-one, whereas that's the only way that you can connect with someone or work with someone. So for me to have the membership as well, which is an amazing space, it's a beautiful group of women that is safe and nurturing, as well as being able to provide the one-to-one three-month and the seven-week program. It means that there's an accessibility and the free group is also a really safe and nurturing environment as well. Well, I love that you're doing that too, that you're offering that because Again, we were talking about anytime we experience trauma, it can be isolating. So when you have a group of people who are doing their own healing, but also in support of your healing, that's Mm -hmm. a really powerful thing. Yes, it's an amazing. I I love everything that I do and provide and, and how people are able to receive it. And I think it's an important thing for keeping a space alive for people to be able to connect with others so that they don't feel alone. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. This was so fun. I learned (laughs) so much from you. (laughs) I've had an amazing time. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. I would love to know what your favorite part of this episode was. Tag me at Finding Strength of Heart on Instagram or Facebook, or you can email me at FindingStrengthOfHeart at gmail.com. Until next time, take good care of you, and we'll chat soon.